just a few days ago there was a presidential debate. Another, I believe, is scheduled for later this week. For some time, we have watched two men compete for the highest office in our land. During this election, and certainly during previous elections, we find that people, candidates, sometimes try to present or draw a contrast. Politicians will do their best to draw a distinction between themselves and their opponents. In life, it's often the case that people try to uh, offer a contrast, and we profit from contrast. If we're interested in spiritual or religious things, contrast is a very effective teaching tool, and it's a good way to learn. We know that because throughout Jesus' life, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that Jesus often relied on contrast. In fact, very early in the Lord's ministry, in Matthew 3, verse 9, we find Jesus using this style of teaching. There were Jews who were appealing to Abraham for help, their historical lineage. Jesus said, but I say unto you. Again, you have there the idea of a contrast. This morning, we want to look at a contrast uh, as it relates to the topic of baptism. That is a useful way to study that topic. We want to consider some of the commonly stated beliefs that we find in the religious world and see if they're consistent with what we have in the scriptures or whether there is a contrast between the two. For the first unlikeness, I have selected the idea that many baptisms exist and that many baptisms have God's approval. There are people, sincere people, who would tell us that they believe in Holy Spirit baptism or they believe in fire baptism and they also believe in water baptism. In addition to a belief in many baptisms, we find that there are people who have various ideas about how to baptize. There are folks who say we, our religious group, baptizes by immersing people, by dipping people. Others would say our practice is to sprinkle people. And another group would say we pour water on people. There are even uh, groups which say we will accommodate you no matter what you would like. You tell us what your preference is and we will do that for you. When it comes to baptism, there are groups that baptize people once and then others would do it three times. In the world, the word baptism means so many different things. There is no set definition for what it is. But listen to God's definition for it. His understanding is stated in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. There's one body and one spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just as there is only one hope and one spirit, the Bible says that there is only one baptism. Now, in the world, we find that people say, well, we have a lot of baptisms, and it's done in a lot of different ways. But when we look at God's word, we find that he knows of only one, the one that has been given by him. And in this lesson, we want to seek, uh, we want to establish what this one baptism is. As noted a few moments ago, not a few believe that Holy Spirit baptism is available. Holy Spirit baptism or spirit baptism is something that many seek, and several claim to have received. When we look at the scriptures, we find that Holy Spirit baptism is not a command. It was a promise, and there is a distinction between the two. We find, for example, water baptism being commanded in Acts 10.38, but spirit baptism is never a command. In fact, Jesus said in Acts 1.5, and as you look at Acts 1 and 2, you find that the promise was made to the apostles. Jesus said, you, the apostles, were going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not a command, not something that they were ordered to go out and do, but Jesus made that promise to them. And that is how the Holy Spirit is described as far as spirit baptism. The apostles needed Holy Spirit baptism because they were going to be involved with some special tasks. It would be the apostles who would write the word of God. And there were some people, of course, like Luke, who did uh, some research. Um, he specifies that in Luke chapter 1. But the apostles, as they were writing the scriptures, they needed that help. Others uh, among the apostles would pass along the Holy Spirit, some of his gifts, to Christians uh, so that they could be effective in their work. And without a completed New Testament to prove the truthfulness of Christianity... 
Holy Spirit baptism allowed the apostles to perform special signs and establish the case for the faith that we now embrace. If we turn to the scriptures and use them as our guide, we find that the Holy Spirit baptism existed for a period of time, but that's no longer the baptism uh, that is the one baptism of Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. have a lot of conversions in Acts, and I want to pull from Acts chapter 8. To read these verses, and then a little later in the lesson, come back to them. Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 38. This is the story of the eunuch. He was uh, in his chariot riding along. A preacher was sent to him. Uh, Philip was that individual. And again, starting with Acts 8, verse 36, and going down through verse 38. And as they went on the way, that was Philip and the preacher, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch saith, Behold, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You may have a footnote for verse 37, which says, And Philip said, If thou believest in thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now here was a man who realized that he was lost. He understood that he needed salvation, and he, as we noted, met up with his preacher. Did the preacher say to him, I want you to beseech God for the Holy Spirit. I want you to seek or pursue Holy Spirit baptism. No, we don't find that in the text. Here was a man who received religious instruction, and this teaching led this man to request baptism in water. He said, I see water, and what would hinder me, what would stop me from being baptized? And that's consistent with Ephesians 4, 4 and 5. Several years before the book of Ephesians was written, and that document was authored, most believe, about AD 60, there had been multiple baptisms. As you look at the apostles, Acts 1 and 2, they'd been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But when was that done? That was done in about AD 33. You find some other examples. About 10 years later, Peter said a similar thing happened at the household of Cornelius. That was about AD 43. At a previous time, there had been John the Baptist's baptism. And again, that was back in uh, about AD 31 or so, AD 32. But when Paul gets to the time where the book of Ephesians is written, about 20 years past John's baptism, about 20 years after Holy Spirit baptism, he said to those people, look, there is now only one baptism. And when you look at the book of Acts, you find what that one baptism is. Luke consistently and repeatedly shows that people were baptized in water. Contrary to what we see in the religious world, there is only one baptism, and the Bible teaches that this one baptism is for adults. When we look at some of the things that are done outside the New Testament church, we find that infant baptism is a fairly common practice. But if you look at Acts chapter 8, the verses that were just read, you find that this non-Christian, Acts 8, verse 37, had to believe before he was baptized. If you believe, then you may be baptized. He was first instructed, and then he had to accept the teaching. Hearing and accepting that information were prerequisites. And Jesus made that same point in Mark 16, when he said in the 16th verse that before baptism, a person needs to believe. A similar case demonstrating faith or belief for a person who is baptized is found earlier in this chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. The Bible says those who believed were baptized. Again, belief was a prerequisite. Adults were the ones who were baptized, and there was only one proper baptism for them to undergo. In view of these points, we might ask why people were baptized, and that's an important question. In our day and time, people are given various reasons, and a common one is a negative reason. It has no relationship to salvation. Uh, baptism is viewed as an act to uh, join a particular religious group. Maybe it's something that uh, people see as, as far as being helpful to a person's conscience. Maybe it's regarded as simply a good practice, but we're told 
quite often that baptism is not related to salvation. We rely totally upon God's grace and nothing uh, on our part except faith alone. But hear what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3. He goes back to Noah, familiar references for I think most of us, and he says in verse 21, which also, after a true likeness, does now save you. What kind of salvation is under discussion? He's talking about saving us from sin, saving us so that we can spend um, eternity with God. And what saves us? He says, even baptism. And there is the connection. How are we saved? He says that baptism is that final step. It is that final component. How does baptism save us? It saves us in the same way that faith saves us. Believing or faith is a part of God's will. It is an essential characteristic that we need to be pleasing to God. And all people who believe in Christ and Christianity acknowledge that. Peter says that baptism is also a necessary part of God's will. It is another condition for salvation. In spite of what Peter said, we are often told, sometimes quite repeatedly, that if baptism is a part of God's plan, then we nullify God's grace. If we teach that baptism is essential, then we somehow diminish, reduce, take away from God's kindness towards men. But these conclusions are simply not supported by the Bible when we look at the scriptures. These ideas stand in contrast to God's word. When you look at Titus 3.5, you have an interesting statement. Titus, when Paul wrote to him, was informed about the washing of regeneration. And that may sound like that's a complicated expression. It's really not. Uh, regeneration uh, is new. Washing, of course, is simply another way to describe baptism. And that's what he has to say in Titus 3.5. If you back up a chapter... To Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says that God's grace has appeared to all people. And there is a connection. God's grace, Titus 2, verse 11, goes hand in hand with the washing of regeneration. Titus 3, verse 5. Baptism is not a work of merit. It is not something that we do to earn our way into heaven. Noah didn't save himself by building the ark. But he was not going to be preserved um, from that ancient flood if he failed to do what he was told. And we do today a similar thing when we comply with the commands of God. Well, if God requires baptism of us, and it is for those who believe, for adults or people who are old enough to be accountable for their actions, we might ask how much water is necessary to carry out that act. We could make quick work of baptistry and make things a lot more convenient by not having a baptistry. Just think how fast things would be if we sprinkled or poured people. We could send somebody over to uh, the drinking fountain with a little cup, and from that cup put a few drops of water on the person's head, or simply pour the whole cup on them. In John 3, verse 23, the Bible says that those who baptized used much water. Now think about that, if you will. A man went to a place where there was much water when he wanted to baptize people. Now, I could take a garden hose, and I could get you very wet. I could put much water on you if I simply hose you down. Well, is dousing what the New Testament writers had in mind when we read about much water or something else? Well, think back to a passage that was given earlier. Acts 8, verse 38. When the verses were read, we saw a picture. And the picture is this. There were two men, the preacher and the non-Christian, and the Bible says they went down into the water. And Luke is extremely specific. He says they, plural, went into the water. That is, both got wet. If we baptize a person using a cup, neither is going to get wet unless we um, are clumsy. Men tell us that baptism requires a little water or we can use a little water. But when we look at the scriptures, we find that God says much water is necessary. Religious teachers tell us that we can be baptized in any way. Um, it's, it's good, but it's not necessary. And scripture refutes that. We're told that many methods can be used, but God in Ephesians 4, 4, and 5 says that there is only one. 
and he implies there that baptism is a very specific matter, and it is. When we look at additional passages in the New Testament, we find verses like Romans 6, verse 4. There Paul described baptism as a burial. We cannot bury something if we sprinkle dirt on it or pour dirt on it. Burial requires an immersion. It requires a covering. And in the next verse, Romans 6, verse 5, Paul says, King James translation, that people are planted with Christ. To plant something means that it's going to be uh, underneath the ground, uh, submerged by, uh, or with dirt. When we look at the Bible and what it has to say about this topic, nearly every fact in the Bible that is presented regarding baptism is disputed or contended with by people in the religious world. And when we see that, those in the world are not really in conflict with us. But the conflict is with God and his word. In our society, religious officials will tell people that baptism is a good thing to do. It is a sign that we're saved. It is a way of confessing our faith. It is a public acknowledgement that we are a Christian. Most will tell you that they are baptized because they are saved because their sins have been forgiven. And those kinds of statements are comforting. Those kinds of statements are pleasing. But our question is, are those declarations true? Are they consistent with what we find in the scriptures? And we find our answer to that kind of question in places like Acts 22.16. There was a man who was not a Christian. A preacher came along and said to him, you need to arise, you need to get up, you need to be baptized, and you need to wash away your sins calling on Christ. When we are ready to acknowledge who Christ is, when we're ready to confess that he's going to be the Lord of our life, then we're very close to becoming a Christian. Our sins are almost forgiven. And Luke says that this man, who was Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, was told to get up, to be baptized, so his sins could be washed away. And that statement is in direct conflict and contradiction with what we find in the religious world. People tell us that baptism does not wash away sins. Luke says, by inspiration, that it does. Religious people mock the idea that baptizing someone, dipping someone in water, can somehow be related to salvation. As New Testament Christians, I've been ridiculed for that view, and I know that some of you have as well, for saying that that is the final step. But when you look at the scriptures, that point cannot be stated any more plainly. In fact, Jesus himself addressed this issue, we will uh, recall, in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. Christ said that a person, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, in order to be saved, to please God, we must be born anew. We must be born again a second time. Jesus recognized that we've been born once. Physical birth has brought us into the world, but Christ said that that is not enough. Sometime after we're born, we become accountable for our actions. We learn about sin. We commit sin. We break God's law. And when that occurs, we need to be born again. We need to be born anew a second time. Well, what does that involve? Jesus explained in John 3, 3 and 5, that we must be born of the Spirit. That is, we must hear about God's Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that's why those people believed the Scriptures in Acts chapter 8. They were taught, they were believed, and then the people responded to them by baptism. Jesus said that in John 3, 5, when he said we must be born of water. From the world we hear that the new birth does not require water. It, it, baptism is not necessary. We're told that baptism can have no part in becoming a Christian. But Jesus said, from the Lord, the judge himself, he said that baptism does have a part. We must be born of water. And we cannot accept both views. If one is right, the other is wrong. The two are mutually exclusive. And if we accept what the Lord said, 
we must reject what is taught in the world. Well, in an attempt to escape the force of the Lord's point, some have said, well, look, Jesus there was talking about physical birth. We know that water, uh, the am am amniotic fluid, is involved there when a child is born, and that's what he had reference to. If that's the case, how can physical birth then be a condition for salvation since that condition has already been met? That's a question that needs to be asked. Returning to the date when we were born in history is uh, returning to the past, going back to uh, a historical event. Jesus said, listen again, born anew, a second time. There must be a birth that is different from the first time. By saying born anew, Jesus recognized that first physical birth. And not only did Jesus recognize that first physical birth, but he drew a contrast to it. Jesus did teach by contrast, and this was one of the places uh, where he did it. Yes, you've been born anew uh, once, you've been brought into the world, but Jesus said you must be born a second time. He expressed the point so well, and yet so many refused to acknowledge the point. Another contrast that we see concerning baptism, what's taught in the Bible and what we find in the world, is found in the book of Colossians. And I'm turning over there to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. All agree that once a person becomes a Christian, his or her life is new. We cannot have new life unless we've been joined to the Lord. I want to start with Colossians 2.13, and we're backwards. I'm not sure how effective it is with other books, but Colossians is an interesting book. You can literally start with the last verse in Colossians 4, and you can work backwards all the way to Colossians 1, verse 1, and the whole thing makes sense. And I'll give you an example of that. Colossians 2.13, and then we're going to back up to verse 12, and then verse 11. Verse 13 says, And you being dead through your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you, I say, did he make alive together with him, having forgiving, having, uh, forgiving us all our trespasses. Paul in verse 13 says to these people, You were wicked. You were corrupt. You were evil. You were living a life that was unrighteous. You were contrary to God's will. You were separated from God due to your sin. And yet he says in this same passage, You were made alive. How did that happen? Well, let's back up a verse. He tells them, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you also raised with him through faith in the working of God. These people had been on the wrong road. But Paul says they had changed directions. How did they do that? The Bible says that they were baptized. The evil and the corruptness of verse 13 was remitted by the means described in verse 12. That one baptism of Ephesians 4, 4 and 5. From the preceding verse, verse 11, we also find that these people repented in whom ye also were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. There was belief. There was a desire to change. These people wanted to head in the direction that was consistent with God's will, but these two items were not enough. They also had to be baptized, verse 12. They were, and that changed their lives in every way. In the world. It's so common for people to hear that faith or sorrow for sin is uh, allegedly enough to become a child of God. But when you look at the scriptures, that's not the plan that we find. We find a plan which is in complete contrast to that. Being religious is so common, but God says it's not enough. Believing in Christ is as far as many go, but God says it's not enough. Accepting the Bible is done by many. Oh, we believe in the Bible, but again, that's not going to take us all the way. Once a person is willing to confess Christ as Lord, Acts 22.16, the final step, the next step, the saving step, and that doesn't imply that the others are also saving steps or not saving steps, but that final step that's required is baptism. When we look at the scriptures, we find again and again a contrast, a definite contrast between the Bible and common religious instruction. If we know the truth, 
If we've found the truth, one of the most effective means for us as a Christian to help others see the right way is contrast. Here is what you've heard in the world. Here is what people are saying. Here is what we find in the Bible. Do you see a difference between the two? And thoughtful people, reflective people, honest people will say, yes, there is a difference. God's word is always going to be so much different than the errors and the doctrines of men. And this morning we hope that you're someone who is interested in the scriptures. We hope that you're someone who has had a chance to see what is taught in the world. And then you've had a chance to open up God's word and say, the two do not match. And I have seen the two. I have seen that a choice is available. And for me and my house, we're going to stand on the word of God. Is that the choice that you've made? You see the difference and you've chosen the Bible? If not, this morning you can make that choice to follow the New Testament and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. And you can begin to make that choice by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And then if you, like my Bible, have fallen away, you can come back. You can leave behind that old way of life, and you can return to a life that is consistent with God's will. If you've left the right way, or if you need to start the right course, and you'd like to let us know, or we can help you, will you not come as we stand and sing the selected song?